focusing on the way that taking action can help other people will really help you manage your emotions in the moment. The less you're thinking about this yourself, the more you're thinking about other people, the more courage you may find that you have. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. What happens in the brain to make some people respond to fear when they see others going through it? versus other people that remain completely indifferent and not affected whatsoever. Today, we're gonna chat with Abigail Marsh, author of The Fear Factor, and we're gonna dig into some stories of heroes showing the character traits of altruism and what makes a person more altruistic than another. But we're also gonna cover the complete opposite end of the spectrum by discussing psychopathic behavior. Abby is an associate professor at Georgetown District Laboratory on social and effective neuroscience, and she's spent quite a few years studying both altruism and psychopathy. So this is going to make for a little bit of a different and maybe even kind of scary podcast today, but we've got some good stuff in store. So welcome back to another episode of Forging Metal. Abby, could you just kind of kick things off with talking about your book, the fear factor, what prompted that, that research in your life? And I know you have a personal story tied to it. Can you just share that with our listeners to kind of set the stage? Yeah, the, the book is focused on fear naturally and the way that we experience fear in ourselves and other people is linked to all kinds of other important social behaviors from aggression and cruelty to altruism and even heroism. And the reason I'm interested in these topics is because of an experience I had when I was a teenager. I was driving uh, down Interstate 5 Freeway in Washington State, headed home late one night when I was 19. And as I was coming over a bridge into town, I, out of nowhere, this very small dog ran across the freeway in front of my car. And I did what I now know you should never do, which is swerve to avoid the dog. And it sent my car spinning out across the freeway, round and round, across the lanes, you know, (laughs) facing the headlights, facing the taillights over and over again. It was really terrifying. And then the car finally came to a stop in the fast lane of the freeway, facing backward toward the oncoming traffic, and the engine died. And because I was on a bridge, like an overpass, there was nowhere to go. There was no shoulder. There was just nothing. And I had no phone because it was the 90s. And I was pretty sure I was going to die because I couldn't get my car to restart. And I don't know what I would have done even if I had. Until out of nowhere, a man appeared at the passenger side of a car and uh, said in a voice, I can still, I can hear it still in my head. He said, you look like you could use some help. And I said, yes, I could. And, you know, to make a long story short, he ran back around the car. So through traffic, got into the driver's seat when I moved into the passenger seat and then got my car running again and then got us back across the freeway where his own car was parked in like an off ramp. And I realized after the fact that what he'd done is stopped. He must have stopped within a fraction of a second of seeing my car, pulled over, run across the freeway in the dark 
to me, not having any idea who I was. I don't, I'm sure he couldn't see me or anything. He just knew that there was somebody in trouble and he, he made a fraction of a second decision to, to stop and, and take an, an enormous risk to his own life to save me. And after he got me, you know, back into a safe spot, he said, you know, are you going to be okay? Can you get home? Do you need me to follow you? And I, you know, I was like, no, no, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And I don't think I said thank you, which haunts me to this day. And he said, all right, you take care of yourself down. And off he went. He hopped back out of the car and drove off into the night. And I don't know a thing about him. Don't know his name. He couldn't have possibly been hoping for any kind of a reward for himself. And it just aided me afterward when this happened, that a person could do something so great and so good to help a stranger at such enormous risk to themselves. And so I've spent the last, I don't know, 20 years now trying to understand the origins of human altruism and how it is that people overcome fear for their own safety, for their own welfare, to help other people and why. Which we're going to get into quite a bit here. I have to ask, I mean, this was, you did a TED Talk on this back uh, a couple of years ago. So you're now out on the internet. Has this person, this your rescuer ever reached out to you? No, to my great sadness, I keep hoping it might happen. It still might, I suppose. But, you know, I was 19 at the time. And you know how when you're 19, everybody over the age of 25 looks a million? I don't have any idea how old he was. He, you know, he could have been... 30, he could have been 70. I, I have no idea. So I remember his head was shaved and he was wearing sunglasses and, you know, he seemed kind of cool actually, but that's all I really know about him. And so I, I hope he's out there somewhere. I very, I mean, I would love, love to hear from him someday. You know, that's funny you say that because that was the question I was going to have because you, you mentioned it not only in the book, but you also mentioned it in your TED Talk. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, today you'd think one of his friends or, or something would say, hey, remember that time that you saved that person? And oh, she wrote a book. So that, that's fast. Maybe it'll still happen. I never told anybody. This is something that, that could be too. That could be you too, which, which is interesting. Although I, I just, my heart just sank because I think you just told me that all of my students look at me and, and think I'm a million years old. <laughs> I've been telling you that for years, Ron. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that, that's great. Let me, before I ask, start, you know, peppering you with questions, Abby, I, I would say, as I read your book, I realized we have something in common. We were both in Las Vegas on New Year's Eve in 1999. No, no really? I, I was there as well thinking, you know, Y2K and, you know, the whole world's going to shut down. Yeah, and you fellow had bad a, decision maker. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So... I don't know if you want to get into that story or not, but but I would say if you don't, then we'll just we'll just leave that out there as kind of a cliffhanger. That if you want to know Abby's story from New Year's Eve on 1999 in Las Vegas, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> My parents are very proud. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine, and and quite honestly, it made me cringe. But you know, I, I want to say that as I as I got your book, it's called The Fear Factor, as we mentioned earlier. I didn't I didn't appreciate what it was about. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest. And so really, and I think you touched on this already, it's, it's, we're looking at what is it that uh, you found in your research that altruists, you know, how does that tie to fear? Again, I think you may have kind of started uh, to to, to touch on that, but I think a lot of people are going to not see that connection, which I didn't until I started reading the book, which I think is quite fascinating. You want to want to touch on that a little bit? So it's really hard to study altruism in the laboratory <laughs> is where the, where the connection started. It's, you just can't get people to save people from actual life threatening circumstances in the psychology lab. 
Back in the day, you sort of, you could kind of simulate it. They would do these studies where, you know, participants would walk by a room where smoke was billowing out and there was somebody lying on the floor, apparently unconscious. And, you know, that, that research doesn't really get done anymore. So if you want to really understand altruism and compassion and empathy and the forces that supposedly drive it, it's better to look in the real world at people who, who really do these things. And the approach I took to start trying to explore these phenomena, you know, nobody had ever done research with real world altruists before. So it, 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 when I was just starting out, it didn't even occur to me. But I knew that I was interested in empathy and compassion. And there is a whole body of research out there on people who don't have empathy and compassion. And so I thought, well, that's kind of like the, the clinical way of trying to understand a basic phenomenon, right? When you're, if you're trying to understand memory, studying people with amnesia can tell you a lot about memory. If you're trying to study face recognition, studying people who can't recognize faces is a really good way to understand that sort of the basic phenomenon. So I thought, okay, so I'm interested in empathy and compassion. I'll study people who don't have any. People who are psychopathic, it turns out, is who that is. <laughs> I mean, that's what psychopathy is. It's defined by a lack of empathy and compassion for other people. You don't care about anybody but yourself. If you can think of somebody in the real world who appears not to care about anybody but themselves, you know, there's a very good chance they might be psychopathic. But unfortunately, there are a lot of myths out there about psychopathy that, that cause people to conflate it with serial killers and things, which is actually an anomaly. In any case, one of the really interesting things about people who are psychopathic is that they are truly fearless. I mean, it varies, right? Because psychopathy is a spectrum disorder, but people who are highly psychopathic often report that they don't feel fear at all. They've never felt fear, or they seem to report something akin to excitement when they're in dangerous situations. And what's so interesting about that is that their inability to experience fear the way most people experience it also seems to leave them unable to empathize with that same emotion in others. They don't, if you show them a picture of somebody who looks afraid, they're notoriously bad at identifying the way that person's feeling. You know, they'll call it anything but fear. There was well, my favorite story about this actually is was related by a colleague of mine in the UK who was testing psychopathic offenders in a prison. And she was showing them all a series of facial expressions and asking them to label them. And one psychopathic inmate she was testing missed every single fearful facial expression, every single face that was these great big non-subtle displays of fear. He missed everyone. And he knew he was doing sort of badly because he got to the end, he got to the last fearful expression in the set. And he's like, you know, I don't know what that expression is called, but I know that's what people look like right before you stab them. So I love this example, right? Because to me, what that shows you is that here's a man who's actually done things that cause people to fear for their lives. So he's like, I've seen this expression before. I can even tell you when I've seen it in situations where people thought they were about to die. But I, I don't know what that expression's called. I don't, what, what is that emotion? It was a mystery to him. So this tells us something really basic and important about empathy is that it's hard to empathize with emotions that you don't have in others. And so a little time went on and I thought, okay, so we know that people who are psychopathic seem to have abnormally low fear responding, probably due to deficits in a brain structure called the amygdala, which emerge very early in life. They're unable to empathize with other people's fear, seems to make them unusually cruel and callous. Maybe people who are unusually high in empathy and compassion, like people who are very altruistic, have the opposite set of phenomena. Maybe they're really good at empathizing with other people's fear. And this seems to drive them to be more motivated to help other people who are in distress or who are in danger. Uh, and so the research I conducted later that I talk about in my book found exactly that. People who are very altruistic, who do things like donate kidneys to strangers, have sort of anti-psychopathic brains. They are 
unusually good at recognizing fear. Their amygdalas, again, the structure that's involved in experiencing fear and also recognizing it, are more reactive and also bigger. And what's so interesting about that is that here are these people who do something that is, is objectively fairly risky, uh, and there's a tendency to assume that the reason they do that is because they're just not afraid of anything. And what I found is actually kind of the opposite. These are people who are very sensitive to fear. It's just they their tendency is not to focus on themselves as much as the average person does. And so when they are in a context where other people are in danger, they're focusing on those other people, and that is what seems to drive them to help. I know that your research is around psychopathy in particular, but you know, there are other similar personality disorders that fit into this, this realm, right? This triad of sociopaths and people with narcissistic personality disorders. Do you, I've heard really crazy statistics around this, that one in five people sort of suffer from one of these three personality disorders and that I'm like one in five. Oh my gosh. Like I have five friends. <laughs> oh my gosh. But one, do you, do you know if it kind of bleeds over into some of those other personality disorders? And also, is it really, are we really looking at that many people that are, are kind of walking around on this planet with no fear, no ability to empathize with others and really have zero altruistic values that they're putting out? That would be a truly terrifying statistic. So right. there's, I would say it's, it's some aspects of it are true and some are not. So Big population studies suggest that maybe a third of the population has some measurable amount of psychopathic traits. But again, because it's a spectrum disorder, if you have pretty low levels of psychopathic traits, it's not that you have no compassion, you know, no ability to feel fear. It's just maybe a little bit less than the average person. It's really only when you get to the extreme ends of the psychopathic spectrum, which is only about maybe one or 2% of the population, that you get the really strongly manipulative, callous, Machiavellian, narcissistic personality that's a huge concern. And, you know, there's probably some borderline cases that are, you know, beyond one or 2% of people. So, I mean, I, I, what's really interesting actually is that doing research on people who are psychopathic has made me much more optimistic about the average person. You know, the, the, the people I study, and I mostly my research has been with adolescents who are psychopathic, but I've done research in adults as well, is that what makes them so different from other people is how callous and without the ability to care for other people they are. And that is really good proof that the average person is caring and compassionate. They must be. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any such thing as a psychopath, right? We'd all just, you know, be the same. And the, the very existence of people who are psychopathic, I think, really reinforces that most of us are capable of care and compassion, but to varying degrees. We're not all the same this way. It's very tempting. There's this phenomenon called egocentric bias that leads us to assume that everybody else is having the same internal experiences that we are, which it's not a bad starting point. I mean, we can never really see into other people's minds. And so we have limited tools at our disposal for trying to understand what other people are feeling. And one of them is, well, what am I feeling? And it's an okay starting point, but it's important to remember how much variation there really is. And so you know, some people really just care about others a lot and other people care about others not so much. And then most of us sort of sit somewhere in the middle. 
you know, when I was reading your book, I, I listened to or, or read, you know, the part about the fear, you know, what you just mentioned. And, and my first thought was, and I think we've talked about the amygdala before on this, this podcast, but I said, okay, that is, you know, I, I, being an armchair psychologist that I am, I go, okay, that's just a threat response, right? We, the, the amygdala is recognizing fear in somebody else for a reason. And that reason must be that it's interpreting there's danger somewhere, but that's not quite what's happening, right? It's not, we don't, we don't respond to anger the same way we respond to fear. Is that correct? Absolutely. So this, this is, it's such an interesting sort of a history of neuroscience and psychology story. Why for a very long time, it was assumed that the fact that most people show an amygdala response when they see somebody else who looks frightened or sounds frightened means that they are sort of interpreting that person's fear to mean there's a threat in the environment that they personally should be afraid of. It kind of makes sense, right? Because the amygdala does respond to threats in the environment. Now, that's not all it responds to. It, in some cases, it responds to rewards. In some cases, it just responds to things that are unexpected or sort of unusually noteworthy. But we know that if you lose your amygdala, most of those processes are intact. So while it's involved in noticing things that are noteworthy or reward-related processes, you still have all those things if you lose your amygdala. What you don't have is fear. And you've probably heard of this really fascinating uh, cases of people who lose their amygdala completely and, and really lose fear and not a lot else. It's really interesting. So the amygdala does a ton of things, but it's not essential for a ton of things. Okay. And people who lose their amygdala also lose the ability to recognize fear in other people. So that's why we know that this same structure is involved in experiencing fear and also recognizing it in others. It's not clear if what the amygdala is doing is just detecting threats in the environment. And that's what it's doing when you see a fearful face. Why you would lose your ability to recognize that face as fearful, right? Why would you lose your ability to come up with a name for that emotion? It would make sense if you, you know, lost your, you know, I don't know, desire to like flee or, you know, lost a skin conductance response or these other physiological signs of fear. But it doesn't make sense that you would just lose the ability to even like name the emotion. And the, Neuroscience research that's been happening over the last 10 years has made a really clear case that when we view other people's emotions or hear them or even smell them in some cases, we, we, our brain tries to simulate that person's experience using the same neural structures that are active when we have that experience. So if I see a person in pain, you see the same structures come online that would happen if I was feeling pain. Same with emotions like disgust, same with emotions like anger. And so... What seems to be the case is that when the amygdala is responsive to somebody else's fear, what it's really involved in is trying to simulate that person's emotional state, try to understand, try to imagine. I mean, it's not all, it's not conscious. I think it's happening way below the surface, but it's, it's helping you create a little simulation of what that person's emotional state is. So you can understand it, you can learn from it uh, and you can empathize with it. Hmm. And kind of related to that, another fascinating part of the book is why Humans, we have, and I forget the name, but the white of our eyes is, is kind of unique to us compared to animals, right? And what's that called? And, and because normally a fear, fearful face, we, we open our eyes wide and we show a lot of white. And yeah. so that's kind of an indicator to us that, okay, fear. And so, I don't know, do you want to you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was fascinating, especially when you talked about how they do animated, animated movies. 
Yeah. You know, other animals don't pay nearly as much attention to faces and eyes as humans do. If you do, there's a really cool eye tracking studies out there where you can monitor where chimpanzees or dogs or other very, very social species are looking when they're having social interactions. And, you know, it's it, they're focusing much more on the whole body, sometimes the position of the head, but not so much the eyes. And we humans seem to be unusually attuned to each other's eyes, maybe because of the very unique things that eyes can communicate including things like intention, you know, where you're looking is a really good predictor of what you're focusing on, what you're thinking about, maybe what your goals are. And it, one of the theories out there is that humans developed some really unusual facial features compared to other species, which include these very white sclera that we have, the white sort of the whites of our eyes. Very few species have sclera that are visible at all, including most of our primate relatives. They tend that that part of their eye tends to be sort of brownish or just hidden. And what's uh, cool about having a really white sclera is that it creates a very high level contrast with the rest of your face, with the irises of your eyes, with the skin around your eyes, with your eyebrows and eyelashes. And that high contrast just naturally draws the viewer's gaze in. And so we naturally focus a lot of our uh, attention on other people's eyes because of those white sclera. And then when you're afraid, what do you do? You widen your eyes, you make those white sclera even bigger, and you just, you can't help but look at the face of the person who is so afraid because of this white vivid sclera. And we think that this is one of the reasons why fearful expressions are such effective cues for getting attention and ultimately for eliciting empathy and help in people who see them, in most people. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about empathy and humility and altruism and kind of how the, the three you found in your research kind of link together. But I also want to touch on, you know, you mentioned offline that you see empathy as being a characteristic of mental toughness. Do you want to kind of dig in on what you were thinking about that? In the interviews that I've done over the years with people who are very altruistic, who, for example, give kidneys to strangers. Again, these are not risk takers in general. Some of the people I've interviewed even have pretty serious needle phobias where they faint every time they get their blood drawn. And, you know, they don't tend to go skydiving or anything like that. Things that are objectively less risky than giving a kidney away. But when I, and I am a bit of a whip myself when it comes to medical <laughs> procedures. So I'm always fascinated how they're, you know, how they don't just want to run away when it comes time to have the surgery that's gonna be you know, a major abdominal surgery, not risk-free, it's not that risky as far as major surgery goes, but it's not no risk. And it certainly is gonna to lead to you know, some unpredictable amount of pretty significant pain afterwards. And I've never talked to a single person who felt nervous or worried in the lead up to the donation. It's really amazing. I mean, this is not to say that none of them do. But not like, oh, like I'm so nervous about this surgery, which you know would be a very normal way to feel about surgery. And they just don't as a rule. And in general, when I ask them what they're thinking about, they're, 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 it's responses like peace and calm and excitement because they're just so excited for this person at the other end of the procedure who they've never met usually, but who they know is very ill. Sometimes it you know, could be about to die within weeks or months knowing that they will be brought back to good health and life. They're just, I mean, sometimes they even say things like, it's not even my kidney anymore, you know, leading up to the surgery. I don't even feel like it's my kidney. It's, it's already this other person's. I just can't wait for it to just get, you know, moved into the body of the person that it really belongs to. Sometimes they feel a little bit of just sort of nervous anticipation that something might go wrong and it won't, a person won't get the kidney or the kidney won't work right, but they're just, they're not thinking about themselves is the really interesting answer. And I, there are some really, 
I think notable examples of people who themselves are prone to serious anxiety and depression that that have even learned to leverage other focus to help manage their own emotion. Uh, one of my favorites is Clara Barton, who lives, you know, a few miles down there. Well, not anymore. <laughs> She's dead now, but uh, her, her home where she used to live is just a few miles down the road from my house in DC. And, uh, you know, people often described her as fearless because she would, you know, she was a nurse, a famous Civil War nurse who founded the American Red Cross and was this, you know, angel of the battlefield who would tend to wounded soldiers in the middle of firefights. And um, people that describe her often as fearless because they assume she must be. But, she, you know, she described in her beautiful autobiography that when she was young, she knew nothing but fear. And she got over her fear by tending to a brother who was injured in a really serious accident when she was young. And she learned to sort of manage her own anxiety and rumination, maybe even, although she wouldn't put it that way, by focusing on caring for somebody else whose needs were greater than hers. And so later in life, when she was experiencing bouts of depression, as she sometimes did, she would sort of self-medicate by going to the battlefield to help wounded soldiers or to, to tend to people who were ill in other ways. And it, it really does seem to work that way by focusing on other people's needs you take the focus off yourself and it really does seem to decrease people's anxiety or, or other kinds of mood issues. Yeah, I've heard similar stories of that. You know, you think of emergency situations, trauma situations, even Viktor Frankl, you know, talking about it. We've talked about it in a previous podcast, you know, being at, at Auschwitz and, and he thought that part of the reason why he got through it so well is because he was caring for others. So we see this and, and before we got on the air, we were also talking about this idea of You've been around some some former military personnel that when, you know, when the shit's hitting the fan, they seem to be the ones that, you know, maybe step up and 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 care for others. And do you think is that something we can learn? Is that something we can develop? Can we develop that that idea to, I don't know, serve a greater good to maybe develop empathy? Is that something that's that's born is that innate or is that, is that, is that something we learn or the, the always the number one answer? It's a little of both. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I would say. It's a little <laughs> bit of both, right? We're not all exactly the same, right? You know, we all, and thank goodness for that. I, I, you know, what, what a boring place the world would be if all of us were, were born just exactly the same. You know, we all have different strengths, but this is absolutely a skill and a trait that can be developed in everybody through training. Experience is critical, right? It's not a, it's not a, a skill that you can develop by just sort of reading about it and thinking about it and wanting to develop it. You need to have experiences caring for other people. There's this really good literature, even in you know non-human animals, that the best way to promote sort of caring motivation and a caring focus is to actually do the caring. And one of the reasons it works is because it's self-reinforcing. There's something wildly reinforcing about alleviating somebody else's distress, improving their welfare. We find that intrinsically rewarding, which the philosopher and neuroscientist Matthew Ricard, you know, I think makes a compelling case for the argument that that, that means we are an altruistic species. That's what it means to be altruistic, to find improving somebody else's welfare intrinsically rewarding. Because, you know, for example, people who are psychopathic, they don't find that rewarding. <laughs> they like rewards, but they don't find helping other people rewarding. They, they, they care about themselves. And so the more you take action to help other people, the more you'll want to take action to help other people. The altruistic kidney donors that I work with, almost to a person, are longtime blood donors. Many have given bone marrow. Some of them, after they donate a kidney, have donated a piece of their liver, which is a, an even riskier procedure than donating a kidney. Um, and, 
you know, they, it's, there's nothing like having an actual experience and knowing a couple of things, the rewards inherent from helping somebody else, right? I mean, most kidney donors I work with say that it's, you know, it's one of the most meaningful things that's ever happened in their life. They're glad every day that they would do it. And every single one says, when I ask if they would do it again, and this is despite the fact that it's an incredible pain in the neck to donate a kidney. There's a lot of paperwork and medical tests that lead up to it. And it's often a somewhat painful procedure to recover from, although it varies. But 100% of them, when I ask if they would do it again, if they had more kidneys to give, say, I would, if I had 100 kidneys to give, I would give 100. You know, that's what a good experience it was. And so you learn that you just want to do it more when you have experience helping other people. And in addition, you get this fantastic sense of self-efficacy, right? You did do something a little bit risky. You did something that was a challenge and you learn that you can do it. And there's, a, you know, a big component of, of courage is, is, is having the confidence scaffolded by prior experiences that are similar to know that, you know what, when I'm challenged in this way, I know I can do it because I've done it before. And I think this is why when people ask me if you have any recommendations as to how to become a more altruistic person, I often just say, well, just start, you know, do something, do anything, you know, help, help somebody in your neighborhood listserv who's missing their dog, you know, help, you know, there's, there's need everywhere. You just have to look for it and pay attention to it and then make that, commitment to yourself that next time you see a need and it's something you can help with, you're just going to do it and, and then sort of build from there. Since you have kind of been in this realm of research for a while now, what are your thoughts on how things have maybe taken a turn in the past year? I mean, we're coming up on a year uh, of isolation with the pandemic. Do you feel that people are more altruistic, less altruistic because of the isolation? Do you feel like they're maybe seeking out how to become more altruistic? They don't care. I mean, you know, Ron and I talk sometimes like speak about how maybe our society is kind of one that doesn't want to get involved mm -hmm. all that often. And I'm just curious if you've seen that change for the better or worse in the past mm. year with, with the, uh, the pandemic? This is such an interesting question and social scientists are scrambling wildly to try to measure the changes that this massive social experiment right. brought on us. It's an interesting mix. You know, I have a graduate student named uh, Joanna Vieira who's at the, she's my former grad student. She's a postdoc now at the Karolinska Institute. And she did a really interesting study at the very beginning of the pandemic last April when everybody was, you know, in the United States, it was just starting to get bad. And, you know, people were starting, not everywhere in the country, but in some places in the country were getting really anxious and, you know, nobody knew how to handle things yet. And what she found is that the more stressed people were about the pandemic, the more altruistic they were in general. They're, they became more motivated to help other people and they reported having sort of more altruistic responses. And that's consistent with the whole body of research showing that if in situations of acute threat in general, people, the same, you know, acute threat does motivate action, right? It motivates you to do something. And it seems to be the case that, it, you know, acute threat yourself motivates you to help yourself, you know, whether that's by running away or fighting or whatever you have to do, but detecting, you know, again, we're, we're empathizing, we're leveraging those same circuits. You're, you're simulating other people's threat just the same way that you would experience it yourself. And that seems to motivate you to take action to help them again, to different degrees and different people. Now, a lot of water under the bridge since April, obviously. And I think there's a lot of really conflicting forces. The, you know, having neighbors and community members in need has, has 
I think motivated some unbelievably beautiful acts of care and altruism that I've been seeing since the beginning. You know, everything from the, the giant uh, wave in applications to nursing school that we've seen since the pandemic started, you know, people, you know, running towards the fire, you know, seeing this uh, tremendous need and, and, and being even more motivated to take up this somewhat risky, caring profession, particularly risky a little bit now. And, you know, community help groups to help elderly neighbors. And, you know, I work with a, a group called One Day Sooner that's been developing a registry of people who want to volunteer for vaccine challenge trials, volunteering to be deliberately infected with the coronavirus in order to more quickly develop effective vaccines. Wow. Um, yeah. Amazing. That said, you know, and so clearly there's been some really good things to have come out of it. But, you know, the the... The pandemic has affected different people really differently. And people who have been really isolated, you know, who live alone, for example, or who live in places that they don't have a strong neighborhood where they can walk outside and feel connected to their community, or if, you know, local restrictions mean they can't, you know, could be contributing to a sense of social isolation, which can really spiral quickly into a lot of other bad social phenomena. People who feel isolated and disconnected from other people tend to experience lower levels of trust, hmm. seems to be linked to lower empathy, although we don't know exactly the direction of the effect. And I think there's real dangers in that, right? You're, you're losing your sources of social support. You're losing a sense of connectedness to other people. And we know the sense of connectedness to other people is so essential for every good thing, basically, <laughs> feeling connected to the other people around you. So, you know, we've all been limping along as best we can, trying to use electronic technology to, to bridge the gap a little bit. But I don't think it's a total accident that there has been, you know, gravitation towards really negative social outcomes. People who are happier tend to be more altruistic. I, we have a study in press right now, actually, at the Journal of Psychological Science that looks around the world at, 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 you know, differences in countries, levels of altruism, and what are the sort of geographical predictors of whether people in a country are more altruistic on lots of different indices, organ donation, blood and marrow donation, charitable donation, helping a stranger, volunteering, even how you treat non-human animals. And by far the best predictor is well-being. When people feel that they're flourishing and thriving, they're nicer. <laughs> it's not, not that surprising. There's a whole literature on the reciprocal relationship between well-being and altruism. Yeah. So that, that, you know, this is a, it does give me some cause for concern as well. Yeah. It seems like a paradigm. You know, I, I read the studies, you know, after 9-11, you know, all the people that, that really came together, you know, in that, in that moment, but I also see these pockets right now. And I think you touched on this of people that are showing even less empathy and, and, and they really feel like they're almost splintering off and, and really going in the wrong direction. So it's like, wow, are we here to, you know, this for a lot of people's brains, this is a survival situation. And so what, where do we go when we feel like we're under, you know, threat and do we help our neighbor or do we step on their throat, you know, because it's every person for themselves. So I, I almost feel like we're seeing both of that play out right now. Do you have any sense of, what, what's our inherent nature? One of the things I ask my students is, are we inherently good or are we, as human beings, are we inherently good or inherently maybe bad or evil? I mean, what is it that drives us? Is it to help our neighbor or is it to steal my neighbor's, you know, last piece of pie? 
you know, what, whatever that, whatever that looks like. What, 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 from a, from a, from your standpoint, Abby, what would you say? Are we, you think we're good? All right. So this is a great question. I mean, it, you know, it really is one of the central driving questions in my book. So I'm so glad you're reading it. The, the really interesting thing about pandemics, diseases, is that it turns this thing that's normally a blessing for a social species, so many things that are normally a blessing into a curse, right? What are the things that normally promote strong social bonds and, and compassion and a, a sense of connectedness with other people? They're gathering with other people, you know, many other people and doing things in harmony that create a sense of unity and synchrony, like singing together, right? Dancing together, touching one another, sharing the same air, smelling one another, right? These are, these are the things we rely on to feel connected to the people around us. And they are normally, you know, having, feeling so close to other people that you can smell them and touch them and, and breathe their air is normally a sign that things are great, right? You are, you are, you are densely woven with the social fabric around you. And so it's something we rely on as a source of well-being and a, you know, a source of feeling like our lives are where they should be. And suddenly all of those same things have been turned into, you know, not only a potential risk for you, but a way that you could hurt other people, right? Breathing their air, touching them, smelling them, you know, singing in the same room as them. Now these are things that are ripping us apart, right? We can't do them anymore. And so, you know, I think this is one reason that pandemic diseases are so awful is because they force separation to help people, you know, like normally to help people, you run toward them, you move toward them, you touch them, you hug them, you incorporate them into yourself, right? I mean, so many of the ways that we show affection are, are really an effort to try to incorporate the other person into ourselves. I miss hugging so much. I mean, I'm lucky, I, you know, I live with my family, but I don't, have, I don't have no hugs, but I really miss hugging my friends, you know, because it's how you, you're, you're making them one with yourself, right? You're expanding the envelope of the self in a way that also really promotes resilience and promotes all the, the sort of good emotions that we use to overcome anxiety and depression, right? The, this sort of extended sense of self that we get from feeling connected to others is one of our greatest sources of strength. And we're just without it right now, right? We, we it's only virtual and it's very abstract and it, it doesn't do the same thing. And so I, I do, I worry a little bit that we're going to come out of this pandemic and think like, well, we now know the things we should never do anymore. We should, I've heard people say this, no more shaking hands, no more hugging, oh. no more kissing our friends. You know, we should always be wearing masks, which of course, you know, mean that you are you know unable to read most of what a person's face is saying to you. And of course it's harder to hear what they're saying too. You know, I'm, you know, I'm never going to eat in a restaurant again with other people. And of course, you know, breaking bread, eating with other people in the same room is an incredible source of group bonding. They're really neat experiments showing that if people eat from the same um, receptacle, like they eat from the same source of food, they're more likely to cooperate later than if they eat from different sources of food. Like these, these are just really wow. ancient things built into our being that signal to us that we are part of this extent, you know, like you hear about like slime molds that are like a super organism made up of like lots of tiny little creatures, but all like in like one sort of giant amalgamation. Well, that's sort of how we live too. in in some ways, I mean, we need these things that we're missing and, you know, like what can any of us do except try to use the resources we have available to try to 
make up for what we've lost. Phone calls, you know, I think many people have rediscovered the joy of talking on the phone. You get a lot more. You, you feel more connected to somebody when you've actually talked to them rather than texted with them, for example. You know, why <laughs> Zoom doesn't seem to do the same thing, I do not know. <laughs> the best I can guess is, I think personally, it's because of the way it suppresses the other person's volume. You know, it, it sort of, it favors one person's volume over another, so you can never synchronize your voices. It's, it, it, it turns every conversation into like this choppy, sort of alternating conversation, rather than the sort of ebb and flow of, of voices talking together sometimes that is actually part of real conversation. But, you know, even just getting out there into the world and, and you know, being part of your neighborhood. I've, I've become much better friends with my neighbors since the pandemic. We spend a lot of time standing out on the street and our masks around fire pits, you know, just talking and getting to know each other better. And I, as a result, our neighborhood feels so bonded and connected in a way that it hasn't before. And it's one of the many things I've said, I hope we keep after the pandemic's over is, is this sense of connectedness to the people around us. So we can, you know, again, it's different for everybody, but there are ways to make up for what we've lost. Yes. And the short, the short, maybe one sentence, we're not built for this. We're just not, you know, I'm an introvert and I have, you know, friends that are introverts and, and I know a lot of introverts said, oh, sweet, you know, this is my world. I'm, I'm built for this and I can do this forever. And, and even us introverts are realizing we need that. We need that connection because we are social creatures. And, and so I, I like to, you know, kind of talk to my students and say, this is not normal and, and we got to do the best we can with it, but we're, this is not what we're built for. And right. so it feels hard is because it is hard. Yeah. And I it's think just, meta, it's tough. Yeah. Like the meta anxiety is often what gets to people. They're like, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed out and I shouldn't be right. I'm stressed about being stressed. And I think sometimes you just have to, you know, embrace it. You're just like, you know what? This sucks and it does suck and it's going to be hard. And you know, but you, we can do hard. And I, and I really try to reinforce the historical perspective. I'm like, every single one of your ancestors has lived through plagues. Everyone, right? That we didn't, we had plagues constantly up and through like the 1950s, basically, when we started developing effective vaccines for polio and measles and scarlet fever and mumps and, you know, all of these awful diseases that were killing off children constantly. You know, my parents lived through plagues and, and they were, you know, much worse throughout most of history. And so I try to emphasize that too. Like we're not we're not built for this protracted social isolation, which PS is not how our ancestors dealt with plagues, but then again, more of them died. So, you know, who's <laughs> to say which is better? But, you know, like this this is like enduring periods of hardship where everything gets turned on its head and there's this, you know, fatal illness circulating through the population and you never know who's sick. I mean, that is definitely part of human history. So like you can do we can do it. It's it's hard yeah. and it sucks. But like something being hard and sucking is not necessarily a sign that you're doing something wrong. I feel like this is the best lesson to give to young parents too. It's like once I got over feeling that like when it was hard, it meant that I was doing something wrong. Parenting got much easier. <laughs> oh, like, it's very unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really stressed out and tired and frustrated. And it's not because I should be doing something I'm not doing. It's just like this is how it is. And I think to the extent we can accept that this is a frustrating, stressful period and but people are built for stressful, frustrating periods. We yeah, I think that's, that's a great message. You know, in our DNA, we are, you know, we're built for resilience and strength. And I think that's a great, great thing to point out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, and I think there are, there are always ways to leverage the situation to make the most of it. And what I usually tell my students is to try to focus on helping other people, find somebody who's doing even worse than you 
or who, or even maybe they're not doing worse than you overall, but they have a need that you can fill and you'll feel better if you, if you focus your, whatever energies you have on trying to fill the needs of other people around you. Well, if we've piqued your interest, uh, you want to dig in on this topic a little bit more, check out Abby's book, The Fear Factor. We'll throw that in the show notes for you to make it easy. Abby, quickly, what are some of the other things you're working on that people, you can kind of rope people in to learn a little bit more? I know you just started a new organization, but yeah, give us, give us a little quick taste of, of what else is going on with you right now. Sure thing. Yeah. I'm excited to have just co-founded an organization called Psychopathy Is. Uh, it can be reached at psychopathyis.org. And it's an organization devoted to trying to disseminate information about what psychopathy really is, dispel a lot of the myths that people have about it, and help support people who've been affected by psychopathy, which is many, many more people than most people realize. It's not a rare disorder. It's you know roughly as common as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or autism. And, but unlike those disorders, which have a lot of organizations out there providing information and providing support to people who are affected, psychopathy has got nothing, mostly because most, it, it feels a little funny for a lot of people to think about feeling compassion for people affected by psychopathy, but you know what, it's, it is a mental disorder, just like all the other spectrum disorders that we're familiar with. And especially if you think about children who have a high risk for developing psychopathy, you know, they, they need the help of the mental health community. Their families need a lot of help. And I have been approached by so many parents over the years who tell me that they have a kid who they know is at high risk for psychopathy, is showing the signs of psychopathy, and nobody can help them. They don't, they have, nobody seems to know what's going on or what to do. Uh, and you can only get so many of those emails before you, you say, I have to do something. So I'm very grateful to have been approached by my co-founder, Lisa Michael, who really is the, the sort of engine behind the organization starting. And um, so we're hoping that we can help some people this way. Wow. Psychopathyis.org. Fascinating to actually, thank you for putting a, a whole different look on this because it's, you, you've opened up kind of uh, a couple of different ideas around psychopathy that I never even would have thought of, especially around children. So thank you for your help there. And final question for you is, mm -hmm. you know, our show mental toughness, resilience, and grit. What advice do you have for anyone that's listening today about how they can kind of incorporate uh, those ideas into their, their daily lives? Yeah, I think most of us have a lot more capacity for um, resilience and toughness in the face of uh, challenge and hardship than we realize, but we have to give ourselves the chance to demonstrate that we can do these things. And so one of the best ways to develop your sense of resilience and mental toughness is to just do the things you're afraid of. This is, you know, we know this from the vast literature on, so on cognitive behavioral therapy and how to treat anxiety disorders is that avoidance is the thing that solidifies the anxiety. If there's something you're afraid of doing, that isn't, you know, if there's something you're afraid of doing, like handling poisonous snakes, that's a good thing. And, and, you know, fear is obviously an emotion that should be listened to in certain circumstances. But if you're, if you know that your fear outstrips the actual risk that's out there and it's impeding your life, you just need to scaffold yourself there. You need to, to sort of obviously working with a therapist sometimes helps, but you know, maybe if it doesn't rise to the level of anxiety disorder, you can often do it yourself. Just force yourself to confront the things that you're worried about. And if you need a little impetus, oftentimes focusing on the way that taking action can help other people will really help you manage your emotions in the moment. The less you're thinking about this yourself, the more you're thinking about other people, the more courage you may find that you have. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, 
Let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.